Let us now turn in our Bibles to Philippians, the second chapter, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, the second chapter. Even though we will be reading verses 5 through 11, focusing there, I think it's best that we begin with verse 1 in our reading this morning. Now, for those of you who have not been with us over these weeks, we have been looking at the reason He came, the reason for the incarnation of our Lord. We began with a sermon on Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind in our first parent, Adam, a real historical Adam who fell and the whole race fell with him in his first transgression, showing the need of a redeemer because we could not redeem or save ourselves. And in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there would be the victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent, a messianic prophecy. And then we went to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we looked at what it meant that, this was the second sermon, what it meant that Christ is the mediator, the only mediator between God and man. There is no other. Last week, we looked at a passage from the book of Hebrews, the uh, second chapter, in which we saw four interrelated reasons for His coming. And we look at Philippians 2 with this great focus upon the cross Uh, this morning, and on Christmas Eve, a brief sermon, but really the pinnacle, because we will see the ultimate reason uh, that the Lord Jesus came into this world. Will you pray with me before we read? Oh, Lord, our God, the depth and reality of the incarnation, our great need of a Savior, a Redeemer, and his coming into the world to redeem his people from our sins. These truths and realities move our hearts in the very depths of our souls to hate sin and to love Christ and to live for him because we are saved by his grace. But Father, we are also very, very sure that there must be many here today who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, And we pray that as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, that the Holy Spirit will open their hearts, that they would not turn a deaf ear, indeed that they would be given ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, who shed his blood for sinners. And we ask, Father, that the Spirit of God would bless the reading and proclamation of his word, for it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you please take your copy of God's Word and stand? Philippians chapter 2, we will begin reading at verse 1. This is the Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And as always, you will need to keep your Bibles open. People of God, in this passage we are confronted with the theological mystery of the Incarnation. It is beyond us that God became man and dwelt among us, but it is essential in the absolute sense. Without the incarnation of the Son of God, we could not be saved from our awful hell-deserving sin. We could not know God. We could not fellowship with Him, and we would be strangers forever to His love. Now let us begin with the great presupposition that underlies this text. And that is the presupposition, the reality, the truth of the Holy Trinity. So your first point is the Holy Trinity. Now you say, where do we find it here in this text? Well, the term, of course, is not used. The term Trinity is not used anywhere in the Scriptures, but the truth is everywhere in Scripture, and I assure you, it is the great presupposition underlying this text. What is the Trinity? The Bible teaches that there is one God in three persons. Children, there is one God, not three gods. There is one God in three persons. That one God is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When you children were baptized, you were baptized with the formula from Matthew 28 given by Jesus to his disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Name means being or essence. The definite articles, and children, those are the these, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, distinguish the persons. So there is one God in the name, in the, in the reality of his being. You were baptized in the name of the three persons of his triune nature. And children, it's person. There are three persons in the one Godhead, not people, but persons. This is the language that distinguishes them. But there are not three beings. No, there is one being, one God in three persons. Each person possesses completely all of the divine attributes. Each possesses the entirety of the divine substance. None is before or after the other. None is greater or less. None were created. The persons must be distinguished but not separated. If the Son of God were not the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, if the Son of God were not God himself, there would be no sufficient ground for his work on the cross. Were the Holy Spirit not God, he could not be the efficient agent of making salvation personal to us. I'm sometimes asked, can you illustrate the Trinity? Many have tried. The answer is no. Every illustration of the Trinity falls short. 
either leading as an illustration to the idea of tritheism, that there are three gods, which is not true, or to the false teaching of modalism, that God simply reveals himself sometimes in the mode of the Father, in the mode of the Son, in the manner of the Holy Spirit. Illustrations lead to that heresy as well. No, the one God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it's not even illustratable. The Trinity is above our reasoning powers. Daniel Webster is purported to have said, the arithmetic of infinity is not for us to cipher. And that is simply the truth. We have something better. We have the constant testimony of Holy Scripture to this truth. There is one divine essence, but three that are divine. One God in three persons. As our catechism says, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, children, there's much more to learn about the Trinity than I've said this morning in these few introductory words to this text we're going to look at. I taught many, many weeks in our educational hour on the doctrine of the Trinity, and we only had a beginning. But do you know something that I've noticed? I've noticed, children, that on Sunday evenings when we have hymn selection time, that it's usually a small child who chooses that we sing holy, holy, holy. And I think that's so very wonderful. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You're being taught that in your church. You're being taught that in your homes. Children, learn the words to that hymn, and you will begin life with a wonderful doctrine of God on which to build and come to a deeper understanding of the truth. Now, I say this doctrine of the Trinity is the great presupposition underlying this text, because we see in Philippians 2 that it is God himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who became man. Isn't this amazing? It is amazing. God became man. So let's look now at the incarnation of the Son of God in this text. So the second point is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Jesus is God. The deity of Christ is stressed by Paul. First by stressing his pre-incarnate glory. Look at verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now note how form is coordinate with equality with God. Form is also found in verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Well, what does it mean in verse 7 that he took the form of a servant? It means that he took the essence of a servant. And so what does it mean in verse 6 when we are told that, that he possesses the form of God? It means that he possesses the essence of God's being. In other words, Paul in no uncertain terms, is telling us that he is God. Jesus is God. So note also the clear expression, who being in the form of God. That little word being is in the original text. Being is there in order that we might see that this is the Son's abiding nature. So let's sum up what Paul says here about the deity of Christ. Paul says the sum is this, who being God in his very nature. Jesus is God in his very nature. Of Jesus, we cannot say that he possessed some spark of divinity, that he was God-like, that he was the fairest flower of humanity, the, the full bloom of evolution, or any of that nonsense. 
Anything less than God is not God. No, of Jesus we must say, the essential attributes of God's very nature have always been His and are His. Only God can possess the attributes of God. Only God can share in His essence. Jesus is God. People of God, your Savior is God Himself. His deity is stressed also. When the Apostle Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this has to do with the Son's relation to the Father. The Son did not need to grasp after equality with God because it was already His by nature. As Professor John Murray says, deity was His inalienable possession. What depth in these words. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is staggering on this Sunday before Christmas. This is utterly breathtaking when we consider what follows. The stress on His humanity, on His humiliation, in light of His deity. Oh, listen, the infinite dignity of His person is what makes the humiliation so infinitely deep. The deity of Christ. Do you understand that only God can save you from sin? Does He not say in Isaiah 43:11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior? Have you trusted Christ as your divine Savior, the one who is fully God? Well, now see this stupendous truth that this one who is fully God also became fully and holy man. The third point, the true humanity and infinite humiliation of the Son of God. Let us read verses 7 and 8 again. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we are told in verse 7, in no uncertain terms, God became man. The condescension is so great, the magnitude so wondrous, that Paul describes it as he made himself nothing. God came down. Do you hear? God himself came down. God came down. The Son made himself nothing. Well, how did he do this? Not by laying aside true divine attributes and taking them up again later after the resurrection, a false teaching called the kenosis theory. It is not by subtraction at all. It is by addition. Notice how it's put there in verse 7. Emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Not by ceasing to be God. Not by ceasing to hold divine attributes. But by addition. By becoming what he had not previously been. By becoming man. And indeed, he became the suffering servant of Jehovah. The connections here to Isaiah are just so prevalent. We can't look at them all. But this is the one of whom Isaiah said, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He gave up glory, not the divine attributes. He gave up glory by taking the form of a servant. He gave up, as J.B. Lightfoot put it, the insignia of majesty. 
The master of all became the servant of all by becoming the servant of Jehovah, by being born in the likeness of men, verse 7, accepting all of the conditions involved with the incarnation, hunger and thirst, deprivation, ignominy, the hatred of sinners, and especially we see the condescension, the infinite condescension by what we read in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took voluntarily the lowest possible position by dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross and bearing the curse of our sins that we deserved and paying the penalty of our sins that we would have never paid forever and ever and ever in hell. He became obedient to his heavenly Father's will. He willingly came and went to the cross for sinners like us. He suffered beyond our comprehension. The wrath of God poured out upon his body and soul, bearing the equivalent of our eternal hell as he suffered in those few hours on the cross. And his soul grew sorrowful as he moved toward the cross. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And doesn't your heart well up with the question, why? Why? And, and the answer that Holy Scripture gives us is, God became man, the Son became man, and he went to the cross, and he bore the wrath of God, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, because, because of love, because he loved his Father, because he loved sinners like you and me. It's all because of love. This is why the baby was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so that in love he might obey the law that we broke, so that in obedience he might go to the cross, so that he might bear the wrath of God in our place. John Owen the Puritan said, For if the divine and human nature of Christ do not constitute one individual person, all that he did was only as a man which would have been altogether insufficient for the salvation of the church, nor had God redeemed it with his own blood. And that's why the creeds and confessions are so careful in their statements. Do you see that doctrine is for life? That we are presented in those great creeds and confessions, these truths? Now I ask you the question, why do you need the cross? You need the cross because your own works could never, never atone for sin. Never. You could do nothing in order to be accepted by God. You were totally unable to recover yourself from your fallen estate in Adam. Totally incapable of doing any, any movement toward God. And even had you been able to, which you could not, you could have offered nothing of your works that would have merited salvation. Your own works could never atone for sin. You need the cross because the penalty must be paid. Someone must pay the penalty of sin. You cannot pay it. You could never offer, offer the payment of a penalty measuring the infinite depth of your need. 
You need the cross because the shed blood of Jesus is the only way the debt could be paid. You cannot be saved through philosophy. You cannot be saved through, through religion. You cannot be saved through some other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. You must have the cross of Jesus because the penalty must be paid, and only he could pay that debt. And you must have the cross because the only way your guilt, I mean real guilt, we are guilty before God under condemnation and wrath. We are born guilty sinners, dead in trespasses and sins. We are children of wrath, even as the rest, says Paul the Apostle. The only way that my guilt, your guilt, can be removed and your conscience cleansed is through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. For those reasons, you must have the cross. You must have man because man sinned. Man must pay the debt. No man was good enough. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, is that man that is good enough. He must be God because the debt demands an infinite satisfaction. His infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value so that you can be saved for time and eternity. So that you can be saved. You need to be saved. Do you hear? You need to be saved. We all need salvation. And only he could achieve and accomplish this. And so we sing, nailed spear shall pierce him through the cross, be born for me, for you. 100% God, 100% man. He, the God-man, could only pay the debt. And believer, what wonder this should produce in our hearts and in our lives. I don't think we have an adequate place of wonder in our Christian lives anymore. Again, John Owen the Puritan says, the more sublime and glorious the more inaccessible unto sense and reason the things are which we believe, the more are we changed into the image of God in the exercise of faith upon them. In other words, the higher the mystery contemplated, the greater the changes that will come in your heart as a believer in Christ. And faith is never more truly exercised than in contemplating and believing and acting upon these divine truths that are preached this morning. Don't trust in the creature. Don't trust in created things. They are finite. They are limited. They cannot save. They cannot redeem. They all come infinitely short. But God, the infinite God, became man. And his sacrifice can save you from your sins. There's a fourth point that we must touch on, only touch on. And that is... The God-man's exaltation, as we find in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He who has always been eternally Jehovah, the second person of the Trinity, who humbled himself, who became man, who took the office of mediator, who went to the cross and suffered and bled and died, the God-man is now exalted, infinitely, infinitely, 
humiliated, infinitely now exalted. And included in verses 9 through 11 are the resurrection, ascension, and the return of Christ. And in that exaltation, he who was eternal God, now God-man, is given a name as our mediator. What was true of him with the glory that he had with the Father before ever the world was, is now acknowledged of him again as he has returned to that glory. And the name of Jesus means the name born by Jesus, the name Lord. The term that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for Jehovah. The Apostle Paul is taking Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, which speaks of the nations bowing before Jehovah, and he applies it here to Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, Jesus is Jehovah, and the day is coming when everyone, all creation, will acknowledge him. He is Lord. Do you realize, believer, he is your Lord, that there is not one thing in life, one thought in life, one area of life that belongs to you. You are blood-bought, purchased at the high cost of Jesus' blood. He owns us, lock, stock, and barrel. And that is why Christmas too. You see, Christmas is not only about that baby in a manger. It's about why the baby came. It's it's about his perfect life. It's about his death on the cross. It's about his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. It is all one plan of salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. And here we see, as B.B. Warfield put it, the path of self-sacrifice is the path to glory. And that's still reproduced in the lives of his children today. Now that's a brief exposition, I guarantee you, a brief exposition of this text that is so deep, so rich, so wonderful, so meaningful, that tells us why Christmas? But I want to bring three conclusions, three conclusions that will take a little time to unpack. You see, there could be no more profound language than we have in Philippians 2 to describe the deep, deep humiliation of the Son of God and His exaltation as mediator. These conclusions are just three of many that I think are essential for us. First of all, what we have read here in Philippians 2 shows us how we are saved from sin. The eternal Son became man and went to the cross. Does not the passage show how heinous sin must be, how ugly sin must be, that it required the death of the Son of God to redeem us from our sins, that God blessed forever would become man and pay the price by shedding his own blood. Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, put it this way, this sacrifice was as honorable to God as our sins had been a dishonor to him. Our sin was the sin of a creature, and the sacrifice was the act of that person by whom God made the world. This infinitely valuable sacrifice, you need salvation, not just moral reformation. If you reform a sinner, what do you have? A reformed sinner. If you help a a sinner just to become moral, what do you have? A moral lost sinner. You need a complete and thorough renovation of heart. You need reconciliation. You need the blood of Christ. You and I must have that blood to cleanse us within or we remain lost. And I 
proclaim to you in God's name as his ambassador from this pulpit this morning, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And as you look to Christmas and you look to the meaning of this wonderful text, and you find yourself out there a sinner, lost in your sin, the Bible proclaims that through Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. Yes, there's hope for you as you trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Redeemer. Trust Him. Give up your own effort. Trust Him through whom alone you can be saved. So it shows us how to be saved from sin by trusting Him who went to the cross and did this great thing for sinners like us. It also shows us the way of hope. The humble will be exalted. Why? Because Christ was humbled and exhausted and the pattern of his suffering and death reappears in his people. Paul, who wrote this by divine inspiration, was beheaded. He was humbled, but he will be raised in Christ's likeness at the last day. Take heart then, as you contemplate this whole plan of salvation, take heart in Christ's exaltation. That is part of Christmas too. That he came down, that he came down, yes, but he's been hyper-exalted. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And so Christ was hissed and mocked and crucified, but he rose from the dead. His father has crowned him as the mediator king for God's church now hated and persecuted. The tables will be turned in due time. Only by trusting in Christ do you have a future. Do you want to have a future? The only way that you can have a future is by trusting this exalted Christ. But it also shows us, people of God, it also shows us how to live the Christian life. Remember the fact of the incarnation and this doctrine is used by Paul to address a very common pastoral issue. How to love one another, being humble toward one another. You know, when I taught systematic theology on the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary, I had 36 hours in which to teach Christology, the person and work of Christ. That sounds like a lot, but it's not. You can't exhaust the person and work of Christ. And I spent several hours on this passage in class. And at the end of that exposition, a little time later, there was a student who came to me and said, I want you to know the exposition of Philippians 2 has, has changed, has transformed my marriage. I don't look at my wife the same anymore. We, 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 we're studying this text. We're applying it to our marriage. It has transformed my marriage. Well, well, it should. The deeper your heart is gripped by truth, and especially the person and work of Christ, the more Christ-like you will become. This is true only for the Christian. You cannot live the Christian life if you do not know Christ. And so it shows us how to live the Christian life. The Spirit of God who indwells you will enable you to be gripped by this truth. What does God want you to know when you know these things? He wants you to know that he loves you and he wants you to love him in return. And he wants you to love, in this context, other believers around you. He wants you to know this love. You know, in the Bible, to know 
can be translated in many instances to love. So to know doctrine, to know theology, to know truth is not simply to have an intellectual grasp of it. It is, it is to, to desire it to control the whole of life, the whole being, the whole heart. I could not help but think of Mary Winslow, whose memoir has just been published. A couple of copies out here. Some of you know the name Octavius Winslow, the 19th century minister. And he said of Mary Winslow, his mother, because Mary is the one who wrote the memoir, Octavius Winslow's mother, how powerful and deathless is the influence of a holy mother, he said. She came under conviction of sin when she was converted around age 17. She had just married, and later she immigrated to New York with 10 children. Soon after arriving in New York, her infant died. She had already, back in England, lost four children. And then she received news before her child in New York was even buried that her husband, who was to come after the family and join them, had died in England. And there she was in a new country, her husband dead, having lost a child, nine children to care for. And do you know what she said? She said this, I think I have learned more of my dreadfully wicked heart and the preciousness of Jesus during this trial than I have ever learned before. She wrote in her memoirs, keep close to Jesus and you have nothing to fear from within or without. She was deeply committed to daily communion with God. And do you know what the Lord used to sustain this mother of nine without a husband in a strange new world? What drove her humility would put strength into her soul? It was doctrine experientially applied. It was the power of truth in the soul. This matured her piety. Her letters tell us that she longed to hear Christ in every sermon, that she was steeped in the old Puritan writers, Owen, Carnock, Bunyan, Rutherford, and she read and read and read. And she said, keep to the old divines. Modern divinity is very shallow, has very little of Christ and experience. This woman in pain, busy with such a large family, in a far off place, knew that doctrine was for life. And I long that we get doctrine weighed down in our bones and bloodstream with every beat of our hearts that it beats truth, truth, truth. And now that is what Paul is saying here. That's exactly his point. Look to Christ, he says. Deep, rich truth. Love him. Steep in this truth. And it will change you if you really know the Lord. That's the purpose of verses 1 through 5. And it would have no impact. Verses 1 through 5 would have no impact without this deep, rich doctrine of Christ that the Apostle Paul unpacks here. Theology is really indispensable. And so he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or perhaps if you're using your, your ESV, have this mind in you which was also in Christ, being another possible translation. Have this mind in you. Then he goes on to speak of the mind of Christ in the incarnation. Do you see? 
But do not mistake Paul. B.B. Warfield pointed out that Paul is not teaching something like Buddhism, the destruction of the self, but the destruction rather of selfishness. He's teaching growth in Christ-likeness, especially producing in us a love for the unspeakable value of souls. And Paul is not teaching, says Warfield, unselfing ourselves. He is teaching unselfishing ourselves. Unselfing ourselves drives us to a cloister. Unselfishing ourselves drives us to take the gospel to the world. Here's what Warfield has to say on this wonderful theme. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means richness of development. It means not that we should live one life but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and, and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. It is, after all, then the path to the highest possible development by which alone we can be made truly men. Men and women of Christ. Now, I hope that this Christmas, especially the children of this church, will be captivated by what we have been preaching over these past weeks, the mystery of the incarnation, that God became man. And I pray that you will trust the Savior and that having trusted him, that your hearts, mine, will be changed and that we will become, that our children here will become, I pray, the most Christ-like generation of children this church has ever known. Children, there was a man whose name was Wilhelmus Abrakal. He was a great man. He was Dutch Reformed minister back in the Puritan era. And he wrote a four-volume work that's still read today. They used to read it in the Dutch homes at family worship. Father would come in from the fields. After supper, they would gather around, read the Bible, and they'd read a few pages of Brockel, get through all four volumes, and then start it over again. Father Brockel, they called him affectionately. They read him there in family worship. He was a powerful minister of the Word of God. And at a very early age, his parents saw in him the fear of the Lord. There was never a time in which he didn't know Jesus. He could not remember when he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He was so young when he trusted him. From his earliest years, he knew Jesus. But his father, Theodorus Brockhole, was a minister. And little, little Brockhole was sitting the way some of you little children are sitting here this morning. And he heard his father preach a Christmas sermon about the incarnation. Remember, incarnation means 
taking flesh. God became man. He heard his father preach that. And he was so taken with it that thereafter he would say, Father, when will it be Christmas again? When will it be Christmas again? Because he so delighted in what his father had preached. Now, children, you sometimes ask too, don't you? When will it be Christmas again? Because you want a break from school. Or because of good food. Or because of a lot of playtime. Or because of family gatherings or festivities. Or because of presents, right? You like presents? Who doesn't? Well, yes, children. But children... Will you ask the Lord to impress upon your young hearts the truth of Christmas? God became man to be your savior. And will you then say, when will it be Christmas again? I can't wait to worship the Lord by hearing sermons about the incarnation. Learn that big word, the incarnation. I can't wait until Christmas so we can sing those great hymns about Jesus coming into the world. I can't wait until I hear the minister. May not get it all right now, but I'm growing into it. I can't wait to hear once again that God himself became man to be my savior. Lord, give me a heart that trusts the one that was born and died for sinners. Little children, will you pray that? We're praying that for you. We're asking that for you. And so, congregation, as we look to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, just be amazed. Just, just simply be amazed. As Augustine said in sermons, sermons 191.1, Augustine said, Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Why? So that you might have life and have it abundantly. That is why he came. And God's people said,